morning, church. So we're going to be reading today John 21st from 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in, because the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that he was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of land, they saw a charcoal firing place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples there asked him, Who are you? They knew he was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of our God. Why does the resurrection matter? That's what we're going to try to answer today. What actually practically would change in your life if the resurrection really happened, which we tried to somewhat prove last week. And two weeks before that, we tried to, to help you feel the experience of. But today, it's a why would it even matter? What would actually change practically in my life were the resurrection to really be true and believed? So with that being said, I'm going to give you two phrases that I find myself saying sometimes, both with regards to food. I already mentioned cake earlier today, which, by the way, if you don't know anything else about me, know this. Birthday cake or celebration cake is one of my favorite things in the world. So when I got here two years ago and we celebrate things with cake, I took that as a divine sign from God that I have found the right church to be part of. Praise God for cake. Amen. Anyway, moving now on to more serious matters. Two of the phrases I'm going to give you. Number one, quote, I'm starving. It was a phrase that I used quite a bit when I was a kid. And I would get corrected for saying it because my mother would say, no, you're not. 
There are many people around the world who are actually starving, and you're not one of them. You get three meals a day, you're not starving. You're hungry, you're not starving. And I was reminded of that a little bit this week by serving at the Salem Food Pantry and helping distribute food to those in our own city who are not guaranteed as much meals as I am, for instance. And so what a blessing it is for the Salem Pantry to provide meals to so many families each week. Another quote that I was thinking of with regards to food was, quote, man, I was hungrier than I thought I was, end quote. And I've said that sometimes when I've worked really hard or done something really physically exerting, and I didn't think that I was actually that hungry. But then I sit down to eat a meal and I just destroy it. And just go to town on whatever is in front of me. It's like, wow, I was a lot hungrier than I thought I was. And maybe you could think of times when you say that too, where you just eat a meal completely and are so satisfied by what you've just eaten. And you say, wow, I just really needed that meal. I didn't think I needed it, but I needed it. And so using both of those phrases as an entry point into today, we're going to talk about spiritual hunger kind of on both sides of that, both maybe really desiring and longing for something and then how good it feels when you get it. Maybe how good it feels when you get it and you didn't think you needed it. That's the tension place we're going to be in today. So we're wrapping up this little post-Easter sermon series today on resurrection stories for the curious, for those of us that really want to dive in and understand the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. And like I already said, today is basically this idea of where would the resurrection really fit into my life if it really is what the Bible says it is, if it's true. What changes practically in your life? And I'm going to give you five things. Number one, Five changes in your life because of a resurrected Jesus. Number one, you move from being alone to together. If you look at this story in John 21, the first three verses, um, you see the disciples together. And just initially, before we get into any of these points in, in any more detail, what's fascinating about today's story, John 21 is it follows immediately after last week's story, the story of Thomas, when Thomas gets the evidence of the resurrection, you know, the nails in his hands and the, the hole in his side, and Thomas is invited to actually see and touch those evidences. But here's the thing about today's story. The disciples now have all the evidence they need that Jesus has been resurrected, and it says that they believe it. So the assumption today in this story is that the disciples believe the resurrection happened. They believe Jesus is walking among them as a resurrected, risen Savior. And now it's a, well, what actually changes because of that? Is life exactly the same? Or is it fundamentally different? And so these are fundamental differences. And the first one we see here is that you go from alone to together. Let's just walk through the disciples' life for a brief second. Before the disciples knew Jesus, perhaps only a few of them actually knew one another. You know, a couple of them were brothers. Maybe a couple of them, you know, ran into each other at the market or even worked together as fishermen, perhaps. There are a couple that we know knew each other. 
But out of the 12, there are certainly several of them that never would have come together, enemies of one another. So Simon the Zealot, for instance, he was like an extremist. He would not have gotten along with some of these other guys apart from Jesus. Or Matthew the tax collector, no one got along with that guy because he was taking their money for the Roman government. And later, if you want to stretch it wider, the Apostle Paul killed Christians. So he certainly wouldn't have been hanging out with the disciples without a Jesus experience. There were many more reasons for the disciples to be apart than there were for them to be together. And I think today, just to bring it into our world as well, aren't there just a lot of reasons for us as people to be apart than there are to be together? Think of the ways that we could come up with to not come together as people. Loneliness is an epidemic in our world today. 79% of adults aged 18 to 24 report feeling lonely. Compare that to 41% of seniors aged 66 and above. So whichever generation you find yourself in in this room today, just know that there's actually a 30% difference. Almost, actually, how bad is my math? How about 58% difference? 58% difference in how people feel, lonely or not lonely. We have an epidemic of loneliness in our world. We need community. Humans were not meant to live alone, and humans were not meant to live with people that are just just like you either. We're not meant to just live with people who who like the same things we like or look like we like look like we look or just get along. We're actually meant to be stretched and challenged by people who are different than us. We need the right community. You know, there's, it's not that there's a lack of ways to get involved in the world today and get connected. You know, you could, you could be a Celtics fan and find a lot of people to go watch the Celtics game with, for instance, and that could be community. Or you could go to the YMCA, or you could go to a local bar, or you could go to a community center and find people to hang out with. But we need to be with people in a true and better way. A way to be with people who were once enemies, but now have become friends or brothers and sisters or family. This is what the church is. The church is the community where people who are different or even who were once enemies now can be together. So after the disciples met Jesus and began following him, they began to be introduced to one another and they, they were bickering a lot. If you read the story of the gospels, they had, it was not like it was an ideal community right away, right? They were, they were arguing over who was the greatest or can I be the one who sits at your right hand, Jesus, when we get to heaven or all these other arguments that they would have. Um, but over time, through the teaching of Jesus, the countercultural teaching of Jesus, a beautiful bond of diversity and difference began to be unified and to be built. And Jesus was the unifying factor. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, some people say you should hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. And then famously, Jesus says, there is no greater love than someone who lays down his life for his friends. Community like this is really hard, but it's possible. 
It's the church itself can be hard and messy and risky, but it's possible. And some of you have experienced that through this church. And now let's look at the disciples after Jesus was resurrected. It says we have seven disciples who are here together. You have Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then two others who are unnamed. One of them's John because he reveals himself later. He's the writer of the book. Maybe the other one is Andrew because this story is kind of, it sounds very similar to the first story when the disciples were called while they were fishing at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And Andrew was one of those disciples who was fishing. So perhaps it's him. Or maybe it was someone else. But these disciples go fishing together. Peter really wanted to go fishing. And so they all went with Peter. And again, I just, I don't want you to skip over that, that little line that these guys who were once very different arch enemies, now they all want to go fishing together with Peter. With. They are together. Once isolated, separated, antagonistic to each other, now together, fishing on a random day in Israel. You know, the project of being the community is not over just because Jesus died on the cross. These guys are still hanging out together. It's not like they came together for a three-year intentional cohort and then graduated and now they're back to their daily lives. They're still hanging out together. It's ongoing. They have developed a love for each other, and it's evident. Following the resurrected Jesus is like your truest memories and moments being fully fulfilled together forever. Again, go look at John 2, and then go look at John 21. 19 chapters, three years, and the stories look very similar, with one grand exception— At John 21, they seem to genuinely love being with each other and spending time with one another. Being with Jesus is like the greatest deja vu moment for your soul. It's like you're getting what you've always wanted, but you didn't know that you needed to ask for it. It's something you've always wanted and desired, but couldn't put into proper words. And the first point of that is community. We need it. We long for it. And we get it with a resurrected, risen Jesus. Because that's why we're here. The church. The church exists because Jesus raised from the dead. Number two, if number one was you go from apart to together or separate to together. Number two is you go from simply existing to contributing. If you read the story of the fishing exercise that the disciples go through in this story you see that they're kind of just going through the motions of fishing. It's, they don't really say why they want to go fishing. They just go fishing. Peter says, I want to go fishing. Okay, let's go fishing, they say. It's, it's very hobby-like what they're doing here. Um, they don't really have something else to do, so they decide to go fishing. You know, if you think about what hobbies are, um, hobbies are, as one you know, Google search definition defines it. A hobby is an activity done regularly in one's leisure time for pleasure. So I assume most of you have some kind of hobby of some varying degree. Maybe it's puzzles. Maybe it's working out. 
Maybe it's fishing. It's something to pass the time. Something you do for pleasure, for joy. And for the disciples, it seemed to be that fishing was what they loved to do. At one point in their life, it was a job. So they would, that's how they made their money. But you could almost tell like through their job, it became something they actually just liked to do. So they found themselves out on the boat again, fishing a lot. It was a good way for them to come together. Kind of a therapeutic break from all the heaviness that they were experiencing in their life. Imagine all the psychological, emotional heaviness these guys are carrying on them. Following Jesus, he's the Messiah. The Romans take him and crucify him on the cross. And then they say he's raised from the dead. And then he appears to them. All this has happened in the course of a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And these guys, that's a lot to carry emotionally. And so you almost get the impression they're like, we just need to go do something fun and a hobby. Let's go out on the boat and go fishing. They're just kind of existing, just doing what's good for them. Kind of like how you and I pick up our iPhone and just whittle away at something, play a little you know, candy crush game or something. It's like these guys are just doing what they can to just kind of have a little bit of a, an escape from the world. And then their, then their, their hobby kind of meets, meets a dead end because they don't catch any fish all night. Which, talk about flashbacks, go to Luke chapter 5 and you find the same story. They're out all night trying to catch fish and they catch none. And so you can almost hear Simon Peter saying, I can't believe this is happening again. We were out all night, no fish again. Is this really happening again? <laughs> no fish. And then Jesus appears on the shore. They don't know it's Jesus. He meets them in the midst of their hobby and not only provides for them, but he actually does one step deeper than providing fish for them. So yes, like in Luke chapter five, he tells them, put your nets on the other side of the boat. So they do that and they catch a huge quantity of fish, which we'll get to in a second. But even more so than that, as Jesus proves himself to be the real worker in the story here, he's the one who can really catch the fish for them. Even deeper than simply providing for them, what Jesus really does for them is he invites them to be contributors into what he is doing already. Because what is Jesus doing already? He's got a charcoal fire going on the shore and he's cooking breakfast for them. And guess what? He's going to use their fish for the meal. And I think that is so cool. Because Jesus already had some fish cooking on the grill. In one sense, he did not need the disciples' fish to cook breakfast. He had his own fish. He could provide for them right there. Jesus has already proven that he can bring fish out of nothing too. So he doesn't need their contribution. But he invites their contribution. In verse 10 is where you see that. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went and brought the huge catch of fish, 153 of them. Talk about details. Someone took the time to count all those fish and then tell John how many to report in his gospel. So if you ever wondered if the gospels were detailed, there's an example. 153. Someone counted all those fish. And Jesus uses those fish to cook breakfast. And I just want you to see how dignifying 
that is to the disciples' work, to their hobby. Jesus chooses to use their fish. He makes us contributors in his larger work. This goes for all of our work in the world too. All of our hobbies, all of our passions, all of our jobs, all of our conversations, God uses for his kingdom building work to invite others to know him. We are used by God. What was once just existing, purposeless living, you could say, or just killing time, now actually is being used by God. We are contributors in his kingdom. We're not just toiling at the wind anymore. Go read Ecclesiastes and read about this guy who just feels like all of life is toiling at the wind. And then see Jesus use the disciples' fish and say, Jesus values my contribution to the world, even if it's just fish from the Sea of Galilee. God does not need us to do this, but he invites us to be co-laborers with him. You know, it's not just like, um, you know, we have two small kids, so we often will, like, if our kids paint a picture or draw something, we'll hang it on the refrigerator to celebrate that moment. It's It's not like God is just doing that just to patronize us or just to say, hey, look, good job, disciples. He's actually valuing and deeply using their work. God values our work deeply. God does not mock our efforts, but he uses us deeply. And let's just shoot this forward into eternity. At the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, there's a Revelation 21, I'm sorry, There's a beautiful, often overlooked little line describing the new heavens and the new earth. And it's Revelation 21, 24. And it says this, talking about the new heavens and the new earth. It says, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Into what? Into heaven and eternity itself. This means that things that we contribute and make and produce on this earth will and can be brought into heaven itself. So if you ever wonder, like, what is the use of me planting my garden or doing this job or meeting this person, Revelation 21 actually says that some of the things that we do on this earth will actually be brought into the new heavens and the new earth as a contribution to God's beautiful kingdom. That's how much God values what you do when done faithfully for him. I can't think of any better motivation for work than that simple fact. So the third thing that changes for us, I mentioned the fish, 153 of them. Zero with their own effort, 153 with Jesus's work. The change that comes with a resurrected Jesus is you go from lack to fullness. You know, Jesus just obviously is about fullness of life and fullness of abundance and everything through the resurrection of Christ. Without Jesus and before him, we really have nothing. It's hard to to prove purpose apart from Jesus being resurrected. It can be an empty existence kind of like the fish represented here. Without Jesus, they caught nothing. With Jesus, they caught everything. Those fish were already or already there, by the way. I don't think Jesus created the fish on the fly and put them there. 
They were already there, but they couldn't be caught apart from Jesus. Three times in this little passage, verse 6, verse 8, verse 11, it talks about how many fish there are in different ways. Verse 6, it says they were not able to haul it in because of the large quantity of fish. Verse 8, it said they were dragging the net full of fish. They couldn't even pick it up. They had to drag it. It's like me with a wheelbarrow because I'm so weak. I have to drag the thing. Verse 11, it says it was full of large fish, 153 of them. There were so many of them, it says. So I just want to do a, a brief comparison here now of the fullness that God offers versus the fullness that the world offers. Think about the fullness that the world offers in its totality. Financially, to be full financially means that you have money left over, that you own your own house, that you have a sufficient amount of cars or transportation available to get where you need to go. It means that you're able to to buy clothes that help you fit into society. It means that you have a retirement savings account. It means generally that you have good planning and resource management skills. And all those things are good. All those things are fine. But that is one example of being full in the world sense financially. What about full relationally? If you were to say, I'm I'm a full person relationally with my relationships, that implies that you have a good amount of friends. It means that you have family that you have that you trust. It means that you have love that exists in your life. It means that you generally know how to manage people in your life well. You're not making people mad all the time and are empty relationally. Think about being full physically. It means that you have plenty of food to eat, like I mentioned earlier. It means that your, your belly is full, generally. It means that you're taking care of yourself. You're eating well. You're, you're working out. Your body is healthy. You're, you're managing your body well. Think about hygienically being full. It means that you generally keep the dirt and the dust off of you. It means you take a shower every day. It means that you are, are self-reliant to not you know, look gross. You brush your teeth. You're, you're full hygienically. You know how to take care of yourself. And think about just being an adult in general. What does it mean to be a fully grown, mature adult? If you were to ask most people what that means, it means that you are self-sufficient and you're not relying on other people to give you money or to help you out, but you can live independently, making your own money, making your own decisions. And again, none of those things are bad. Don't hear that as a negative, but that's the fullness that the world offers. Now think about the fullness that God offers himself. The fullness that God offers comes straight from his hand alone, meaning that you are naturally dependent on him to receive anything. The fullness of God is is something that cannot be taken from you. It is indestructible. And I'm looking at the net in this story. Verse 11, it says, there were so many fish in this net, but the net was not tearing apart. Remember earlier when I referenced Luke 5, the same kind of story where the disciples didn't catch anything. And then Jesus says, put your nets down the other side. And then they catch a whole bunch of fish. Do you know what happens to those nets when they bring in that big catch of fish? It says that those nets began to break apart. 
I find it really fascinating that the resurrected, risen Jesus in this encounter, the story is almost exactly the same until the nets. In this story, the nets do not break, do not begin to break apart. I find that as a detail worth pointing out, that there's something here about what God is giving that is indestructible. It does not break. And that's, I think, a primary difference between the fullness of what we get on earth from this world and the fullness that we get from God. The things that we get on earth, the independence we build up, the resources we build up, ultimately will be destroyed because we will die. The Bible throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament talks about, you know, don't build up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Don't build bigger barns to store all your stuff because one day you won't be here anyway. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so contrast that with the kingdom of God. You know, John 10, 10, one of my favorite verses, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it to the full. That word there, the full, just means more. I pray that you will have life more. Life that is extraordinary. Life that is abundant. That's the life that Jesus offers, the fullness of him for our soul. There's a beautiful um, section in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which if you're in our Wednesday Bible study, we'll get there probably soon. But Paul is going through um, this long list of things that he's going through. And it finishes with this in verse 10. Paul says, we often live as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many others rich, as having nothing, yet having everything. That's the fullness of God that Jesus gives us. Number four, the change of the resurrection means that we go from mystery to knowing. So if you look at the conclusion of this little story in John 21, look at verses 12 to 14, Jesus invites them to the beach to have breakfast. And I just love this verse. It says, now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. That's a difference from before. This is the third time that Jesus has appeared to them, it says. And by now there's no more mystery. Jesus didn't have to say who he was. Jesus didn't have to show him marks on his hands. Jesus didn't have to spell it out for them. They knew it was the Lord. When Jesus is raised, the mystery slowly begins to fade as to who God is. How did they know without needing to ask? I mentioned all these flashbacks, John chapter 2, Luke chapter 5, all these other encounters. Jesus had given them a holy memory through these encounters. They knew it was Jesus because this just smelled like Jesus. This just was something that Jesus would have done. They began to recognize in Jesus, not only his physical face, which interestingly, all these stories, they seem to not be able to recognize Jesus physically, right? So there's something mysterious happening there that I can't tell you more about. I don't know. I don't know why they couldn't recognize him physically, but it doesn't matter they began to recognize them spiritually. 
He was not instantly recognizable physically, but he was recognizable spiritually and relationally. They knew it was him because of the love that he was showing them. He was providing for them. He was inviting them to have a meal with them. You know, and he, he, he tells us to do similar things. Um, you know, if, if, if we know God by his love for us, Jesus also tells us that the world will know us. The world will know Jesus through our love for each other. So there's something about this love that was so present in that encounter and in all these resurrected encounters that makes Jesus known to the disciples. And as you and I love one another and love our neighbors well, people will know Jesus through our love as well. Jesus was making himself known to them. He wasn't trying to keep it a mystery any longer. Jesus seemed to be fully known by them. You know, I, this, this story actually reminded me of a silly story from a few years ago that Sarah and I experienced. Um, Sarah and I were going out to breakfast one morning and we were walking into this restaurant. And as we were walking in, there was this, there was this guy walking towards us and a woman with him. And we both, Sarah and I both looked at each other and we said, that guy looks really familiar. And we kind of stared at him and kind of like eyed him as he walked in and he looked at us. And he gave us this smile. And he's almost like, I know you're going to realize who I am in about 10 seconds. And sure enough, he walks in the restaurant. As, actually, actually, we were walking out. He was walking in the restaurant. So we're going opposite directions. And as we're walking out, he goes in the restaurant. We can't see him anymore. We see his Maserati parked in the parking lot. And we noted, like, the girl that was with him probably was a supermodel of some sort. But then we realized, that's John Cena. That's this guy that Sarah had seen on the Today Show, I think. And I knew from professional wrestling, so we both kind of had these angles of how we recognize this guy. But you know what got me the most about the encounter? Was the look that he gave us as we passed him. He didn't tell us who he was, but his look almost gave it away that he knew we were going to figure it out because he knew who he was. He was going to let the mystery sit there and let us discover it through that understanding. And I think that's a little bit of what was happening with the disciples and Jesus here. We did discover later, we we did more research. We're like, why is John Cena in New Hampshire? And it's because he grew up in West Newbury. So we're like, oh, he's probably visiting family, going out to breakfast. But this idea of, of mystery to knowing, God was leaving breadcrumbs along the way for the disciples, and they knew it was him. They knew it was him through his encounter with him. The last point I'm going to make, this is summing up the whole, the whole story. The whole story gets summed up in this one change, I think. The change from distance to closeness. The disciples were far out on the boat. It says they were 100 yards away. Jesus is on the shore. You know, so physically speaking, there's a football field between them. They were far enough out to be in enough danger. Jesus was on the shore. He was standing there, active, attentive, engaged. They could could hear him. He was in shouting distance to them, but they could barely see him. There was a a chasm between them. There was length. There was depth. There was literally, literally water in between them. There was diversity of topography. There's sand and water between them. There's the sun beating down on them. There's the possibility of storms coming. 
There's time that it would take to bridge that gap. Think of all the things that are between Jesus and the disciples at the beginning of this encounter. And yet Jesus calls them to come. He closes the gap. And the disciples get so excited because they know it's Jesus that one of them can't even take the time to row to shore, but he has to jump out and swim himself. The others take the boat, but they come running, they come swimming, they come excited, and they come willingly because Jesus is that magnetic to them. And so for you and I, spiritually speaking, the spiritual hunger that takes place in our hearts with the resurrection is this longing for something that we didn't know we needed before. Jesus, well before this, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And you see these disciples sitting there eating fish and bread on the beach. I don't think it's that that's satisfying them. I think it's being with Jesus that is satisfying them. The communion that they have with Jesus. Infinite joys are being offered to us in the person of Jesus, as C.S. Lewis would say. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. So as we meet the risen Jesus... What we hunger for and thirst for begins to change and be satisfied forever. Let me close with this image. I was talking to a pastor uh, one time who was lamenting on how much his church doesn't remember about things that he's preached over the years. He said, I don't think anybody ever remembers anything that I preach, which is kind of a common self-conscious thing that preachers feel. It's like, is anybody ever actually going to remember anything that I say every week? Um, And he was responded to with this helpful wisdom from an older teacher. This, This person said this. This person said, how many meals in your life do you actually remember eating? He said, think about it for a few minutes. You may be able to come up with a handful of actual meals that you can remember vividly throughout your life. Maybe it's your wedding meal. Or maybe it's an anniversary meal. Or maybe it's you went to this amazing fish restaurant on the coast and you just will never forget the taste of whatever. But he said, you only remember a few meals you've had in your life, but you're still here. Meaning that you've eaten a whole lot of meals that you don't remember. And yet you're alive. You're nourished. You're healthy. You've been sustained through many, in some sense, forgettable meals but you are alive. And he says, that's the way it is with the gospel and with even sermons or coming to church or Bible studies or encounters with Jesus you've had. Maybe you'll have some really memorable ones that will sustain you and make you long for that in heaven forever. But most of the time, it's the simple, small, ordinary daily meals you eat, the daily times you have with Jesus, the the weekly encounters at church that are actually just keeping you spiritually alive and helping you get to your final destination, eternity with him. To sum up, I'll give a quote from this Egyptian um, Bible teacher. He talks about the experiences of, of the Christian life. And this guy says, quote, you know, we look back and we want more of those experiences. 
but the Lord himself wants something more precious. He wants to give us himself, the assurance that he is with us, not just his gifts, not just his power, but himself. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus gives us, gives us Jesus himself. Amen. Let me close us in prayer. We'll sing a few songs to finish. Gracious God, thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for giving us life because you yourself are alive. We're not worshiping a dead God. We are worshiping a God who is very much alive, very much at work in the world, and who loves to reveal himself to us and and prove to us those changes we just talked about. So God, as we sing now, we pray that you would receive this as, as praise to you for who you are, for what you've done. Help our, help our hearts to hunger and thirst for you today and always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.